welcome. This podcast is hosted by Vera Bhava Yoga and explores our understanding of yoga and its relationship to resilience. If you like exploring with us, use coupon code PODCAST2022 at virabhavayoga.com to receive 15% off of all Virabhava products and programming. I am your host, Kelly Golden, and I'm a writer, a yoga teacher, a dedicated practitioner, exhaustive thinker, and the founder of Virabhava Yoga School. I've been practicing and studying yoga since 1995 and teaching since 2003. My primary focus is Sri Vidya Tantra and the ways that yoga can be directly applied to our lives in all situations. This season will continue to follow my exploration of just that, both my successes and my failures, as well as feature conversations with fellow practitioners, teachers, and humans living resilience as their yoga. Through contemplation, wondering, conversation, and experience, we will explore resilience as synonymous with the path and practice of yoga. Our conversations will unpack the points of crossover, the similarities of experience, and the ways that both practices support arriving whole and alive in the midst of wherever we find ourselves, be it hardship and challenge or joy and pleasure. Many of these conversations are hosted monthly as free live classes that also include an accompanying asana practice. Visit our website to learn more and to participate if you would like to explore studying with us more deeply. Check out our online Tantra yoga and meditation programs at virabhavayoga.com. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello. In this episode of the Yoga of Resilience podcast, we jump into season two with some big questions and contemplations about how we need each other to be resilient. I wonder about whether we can really be resilient alone, if we can feel buoyant when we are disconnected from each other, and ultimately if resilience is possible if we only focus on serving ourselves. We unpack some big questions that challenge our modern paradigm of deserving and self-care. This wondering moves us into a space where resilience is not avoidance of each other's problems, but instead is an engagement with whomever and wherever we find ourselves. And hopefully we offer some suggestions about how we can invite more care into our lives. Enjoy listening. Today's resilience talk is about community. And I have a lot to say about it, and I'm having a hard time generating the words to say it, which, um, if you know me even a little, you know is not a normal thing for me to find the right words to wrap around and weave into a subject or a thought. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what resilience looks like individually. Um, I feel like I've just got sort of shot out the other side of an extremely trying experience that that m- required me to call on some of these strategies that I've been talking about for a couple of years now. And um, 
required me to lean into some areas of discomfort that maybe weren't the most familiar places for me to lean. Um, I know that I'm always encouraging y'all to lean into your discomfort and to not turn away and not bypass and um, and it's hard. And so I just want to um, lift that up, the recognition that that staying with our discomforts and our our emotions and our challenges is is really challenging. And resilience isn't often available when you're deep down in the hole of that. Yeah, it's resilience is often the response to coming back to yourself after difficulty. Um, But knowing it's there and knowing these strategies exist whenever and wherever you are is often, you know, the life raft that we need to reorient towards what we're capable of. But when I was reflecting on my personal experience of resilience, one thing I recognized is um, though I often felt very, very alone, I was actually never alone. And though I often felt very, very far away from support or very, very far away from help, it was always available, right? So um, it has gotten me thinking about community in a different way. And I have some questions and I actually want to start off by asking y'all a question. Um... Can we be resilient alone? And maybe after this time together, you can take some individual time to, to think about that. Um, I've said for years, yoga is a solo practice, but we can't do it alone. We can definitely roll out our mat and at home and we can do move our bodies and put them in certain shapes and we can breathe in certain ways and um, we can engage in certain levels of practice. But until we are in relation to other people or in relation with, relationship with other people, have we really achieved or accomplished what the practice of yoga can offer us? I want to I posit the possibility that maybe not. Um, I encourage you, and I know that you've all done it, get really alone in your practice and feel the mastery that comes from that. Right? Ram Dass used to say this, and then go spend a week with your family and watch the mastery that you have achieved melt away into the chaos of remembering uh, what it's like to be viewed in certain ways and what it's like in relationship with other people that think they know you or whatever your story is, right? Um, Until we can engage, (laughs) yeah, right. I'm not meaning to call you out, Courtney. Courtney says I'm calling her out. I'm just reflecting relationships. And understanding. <laughs> so when you when you have these moments of integrating your practice into your life, that's where we find out how well we're practicing. That's where we get in tune with how much this work is actually working for us. That's when we start to understand that we're never ever really alone in our practice. 
right? And sometimes for a lot of um, sort of beginning of the path yogis, that's a really frustrating place to be. Because you'll go to your yoga class or you'll sit in your sangha and you'll have these experiences where they're just like mind-blowing aha moments where you think you've got it all figured out. And then you'll walk out to your car and as you're going out to your car, you'll get a text message from your lover that's like aggravated that you didn't pick up the dry cleaning. I don't even know if that still happens, but you know, or whatever mundane life thing is. And you'll watch yourself. Right? This is the beauty of yoga is it gives you witness consciousness. You'll watch yourself get pissed. right? Or you'll watch yourself disengage with the peace and centeredness that you feel like you found. And it will feel like the utmost disappointment. Right? So what I want to say is, no, you haven't failed. That's just part of the yoga. And how do we engage? How do we um, learn how to take the lessons that we find on our own forward into the life that we're living with each other? And, and this starts really small. It starts at home. It starts close in, as David White says. But it doesn't take long for these lessons to start to grow out into making a bigger, more meaningful impact in the world. Um, on Thursdays, I have this opportunity to sit with my Vichara partner, my, my self-accountability partner. Almost every Thursday, we sit for two hours and we sort of roll around in the muck of our existential crises and our, and our uh, concern for the world or, or our personal concerns. And uh, one of the things that we talked about today was how essentially none of us matter. So when you think about time on an on a actual scale, not on a perceived scale, which is uh, time exists in the context of our existence, but when you think about time on an actual scale, that time has, been, has preceded you by many millennia and will most likely, who knows these days, but will most likely carry on without you, us or me as an individual is fairly insignificant. And in some ways, that can feel really liberating. Maybe it feels sad. Maybe it feels um, a little disappointing, especially if what we're working to do is make big, significant change in our world. Um, but in some ways, it's a little freeing. Like, hey, maybe, maybe all the pressure's not on you. Yeah. And paradoxically, as is the tantric way, if it's not a paradox, it's not real. Paradoxically, your entire job on the planet for the time that you're here is to be a meaning maker. A story maker, a hamkara, an eye maker. So your entire existence is based on you making your story meaningful. And your story is essentially insignificant. Isn't that amazing? It's a hard thing to grasp. It's definitely one of those like emojis with your head popping off. People ask me what I do for a living and I'd send them that emoji. Because to understand it is missing the point. To experiment with it, to engage with it, that's where we're at trying to understand. So the question then becomes, if 
time exists before me and well beyond me. We call it uh, like long time or thick time. Time that's always been going and going and going. Then what do I want to bring to this existence? What is my offering in this tiny little blip that I get to be a part of? Somewhere along the way, we've collapsed our offering into being simply us. Call it capitalism, call it colonialism, call it organized religion, I don't what it, call it whatever you want, but we have started treading a path that our personal successes are the reason for our existence. And there's a really interesting study out there uh, it's really interesting in a lot of angles in a lot of ways, but it was a Harvard study, one of the longest human studies ever done, uh, focused on, I think it was 12, I can't, I'm sorry, maybe 200, I can't remember how many, men started as boys and tracked them all the way to the end of their life. Have you seen this study? All, all white men, unfortunately, sorry for that. But the, the name of the study, the name of the game of the study is what actually makes you have a satisfied, joyful, happy life. At the end of your life, when you're looking back, what defines a life well-lived? And none of these men identified their personal level of wealth, their personal success or achievement professionally. None of these men oriented a well-lived life around how much they succeeded or how much they achieved. Instead, they oriented what made a well-lived life out of the cultivation of their most meaningful relationships. Now, when I say this, maybe it's edgy. And what I also know is, you know it's true. Even what drives our search for success or our search for security, whether that come from material wealth or something else, what drives all those things is a deep longing for meaningful connection, right? You know this. Interestingly, we have a tendency to fear the depth of connection that is possible for us. So when we start to feel like we've got it going on and connection comes our way, often what we do is protect ourselves by pushing it away in a hundred different ways, a thousand different ways, a million different ways. But what if the quality of our connection, both close in and as far as we can fathom, is the point? The next question I have to ask and have for you to contemplate is if that's true, and, and I don't know, it's just a hypothesis, but if that's th- true, how is what you are doing helping you cultivate a bigger connection with your world? How is what you are doing helping you cultivate a bigger connection with your world? Because everybody's job can cultivate a bigger connection. Everybody's familial relationships, everybody's intimate relationships, everybody's friendships can cultivate a bigger connection if we choose to bring consciousness to that as the meaning we're trying to make. Right? 
I've been not down on the world. That would be an inaccurate statement. But I traveled internationally for the first time in two years over the holidays. And um, I'm not sure about you if you're international travelers. But every time I leave the country and come back, I get a little like, I feel so great and amazed by by seeing new places and experiencing new cultures and watching how other people do things. And then I come back to the States and I'm just like, it's like the energy of the U.S. And it takes me a few days to get out of it um, because it's a shock to the system. For all of the lack of familiarity that occurs in in international travel and going to other cultures and other countries um there's there's not often that lockdown protective strategy that you're met with right i haven't been all over the world but i've been a handful of places and and the united states is one of the least welcoming countries built on welcoming the people from all over the world, right? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, and I'll meet you like this. <laughs> right? That's the nature of how this goes. But what it got me thinking about when I was standing in line uh, at customs with a, a sick kid, my, my kid got sick on the travels, and a, a really tight connection trying to get home after close to 30 hours of travel. Um, it got me wondering if we've just become so myopic about our own personal belief and value systems that we cease to see the beauty that's around us. Right? Here I am in this incredibly long line of people from all over the world for as many different reasons as I could possibly imagine choosing to come into this country and all I see is, right? Uh, My myopathy, my singular focus was driving how I was feeling about the moment, right? And I wonder how many people in line all around me were having the same experience. And this is like the most mind-boggling piece of the whole thing is in our collapse into ourselves and into our individual stories, we become unaware of the possibility that everyone or at least many people are having a similar experience as we are. We become unaware that there right in front of us is an opportunity to connect even though we feel like we're alone. Right. And I and I've watched this play out in a lot of different ways in the pandemic and in the in the experience of feeling disconnected from each other, because we are what we focus on. What we focus on is generative. And when we focus on being alone or being separated or being on our own or what our experience is being the only thing that is available to us, then guess what we get? We get just that. But when you walk out your front door, and I said this maybe on our very first resilience call ever, I said, I walk out my front door and people are in their yards. Neighbors that I'd lived in that house for two years, neighbors I'd never met were now having conversations on the street with me, right? Safe distance, of course, but people were coming out of their houses. They were opening their eyes to the community of which they were a part 
when before we were isolated behind doors, behind locked doors and windows. And then what we found was maybe we had a lot more in common than we thought. Right? I think that when we can start to understand that the work we do for ourselves is always making an impact in those realms that are bigger than us, then we start bringing a different level of engagement and intelligence to the work we do for ourselves. Right? We start, it, it actually has a buoyancy to it instead of a gravitas. If you are coming to learn how to meditate so that you can engage more fully with the world around you or the people that you love, or more importantly, the people that you don't love, then the the work of learning meditation, the willingness to commit to those sadhanas, it becomes buoyant. It becomes lighter. It doesn't become burdensome. So when we shift our focus from the singular self into the way that we can be an offering to something bigger, what happens is we're no longer burdened or at least much less burdened by our own personal work. And instead, our own personal work becomes the way, the avenue through which we can connect. And it makes us feel lighter. It makes us feel more connected. It makes us feel more joyful. And then it generates itself. Right? Like, how many times have you seen Betty White in social media in the last, I don't know, week? Right? Bless her. Did you meet her? Did you ever shake Betty White's hand? Wouldn't that have been great? I didn't. Most likely you didn't also. But her buoyancy her willingness to connect and stay engaged even well into her advanced life years makes us all feel buoyant she was giving of herself as an offering openly joyously and we feel uplifted because of that so over the years in this um self-discovery, self-help world, we've, we've collapsed in a little, right? I, I still read a lot of um, self-care first, self-care first, self-care first. And I guess I, yes, and how does the care that you give yourself influence, impact, and engage with the world around you? If we're not asking that second question, then I don't think we're really showing up to the full capacity that this work has to offer. Our modern culture, for myriad reasons, focuses primarily on the values of independence, individualism, and competition. And in so many ways, those, those pieces have eclipsed our connections with each other. We don't value generosity and sharing and care 
in the ways that we value success and achievement and individuation. I'm saying that as a fact. I don't know that it's a fact, but it feels like a fact to me. And what we've found, I think, if we care to stretch our lens a little bit, is that none of that has filled up the hole of sadness and loneliness that we have inside. We have so many ways to stay connected. Yet we feel more disconnected from each other now than we ever have. So I don't necessarily think that's a problem with the tool. I think that might be an issue with the user. Are we maintaining our personal levels of awareness and connection and openness and willingness and vulnerability even in the face of challenge? Are we doing the work it takes for these devices to keep us connected? Or are we trying to bypass our own work and let these devices do the work for us because they will not. They will not keep us connected. Right? So, can we be resilient alone? Can you have an experience of of beautiful resilience, whatever that is, walking out the door and experiencing unparalleled joy over the smallest uh, seemingly insignificant things can you can you have a dance party in your living room just celebrating how happy you are to be alive uh, can you can you turn a thought over and over and over in your mind and look at it from all different angles until you feel like you've cracked the code of the mystery of existence and share that with no one and feel resilient Isn't so much of how we find our resilient force inside of ourselves, even our yogic experience in sharing it? Even if we're not sharing by teaching other people how to do it, but we're just sharing by finding the way that it enhances who we are and the way that it makes us feel and then going out and being that enhanced, beautiful human in the world. Can we get to resilience if all we're doing is hiding away and doing our own work? I don't, I don't think so. If it was true, you wouldn't be here. You'd be there, not on your screen, doing your own thing. But we want each other. We need each other. So I want to know because I am, for better or worse, and for whether it was a choice or, or a destiny, I don't know. But I'm in the yoga industry. The yoga industry, which is hyper-focused on self-improvement and on self-care and on self-orientation. Uh, I want to know how our industry is in service to resilient living. I want to know how we can take this yoga thing and make it in service and offering to something bigger. And that will be all 
unfortunately for you guys that are going to hang out with me for the next year, that's all I'm going to talk about for the next year because it matters. How we are living with each other matters. And the fact that we're choosing to live it like a competition might not be okay. How does serving ourselves alone contribute to the benefit of the whole? I don't have an answer, but it is a question that I will continually, I hope for the rest of my breathing days, seek understanding of. Because I do believe that so much of this work of yoga is solo work. It's you getting to know yourself. It's you uncovering or excavating your own shadows. It's you getting really real with your accountability in any given situation. It's you being brutally and beautifully honest with yourself and everybody around you. It's it's self-work. But how are we bridging that self-work into our world? That is how we become resilient. So many notes. I wrote an like three-page paper on this. I could turn it into my eighth grade teacher, I think. Um, Check into the places where your lives have become transactional. And here's why. Number one is every time you have a I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back mentality, it's telling you something about you. Maybe it's telling you that you're crossing your own boundaries. Maybe it's telling you that you're too tired. Maybe it's telling you that there's more to the picture than you can currently see. Every time your engagement is transactional, alone, just about the transaction, about you giving an expectation of getting back, then you have something to see in yourself that maybe you're blind to. Because ultimately, I think the point of being human is to be love. Not to be loved. But to be love. Every time we move towards transactional engagement, we're qualifying our love. That's not really love, y'all. You know that, right? I don't mean that you don't have boundaries. I don't, I don't mean that you're not supposed to get pissed off about shit or take a stand about stuff. Like, do all of that, but know where it's coming from. That is the yoga of it. That's where resilience will thrive is when you are clear on where your motivations for these things are coming from. And here is a clue that you might not be fully aware. You justify your desire to compete or separate. When you have a justification for your need to compete, when you have a justification for your need to divide, when you have a justification for your need to conquer, when you have a justification for your need to separate, that is a clue that there's more introspective work for you to do. 
It is a clue that you're separating out of protection and you have a justification to show that you need to protect yourself. It's not coming from love. And don't get, um, like, I don't think love is a fairy tale, y'all. There is no, love is not a savior. Love is not going to sweep down on its white horse and scoop you up and ride you away into the sunset. Please, God, somebody make a movie on what happens on the sunrise side of things. Ride away into the sunset, sunset on the white horse with your savior. And then please pick up the filming the next day in the morning when the dishes aren't done and the socks are on the floor and right there's they're out of coffee whatever it is like please next day because that is love too how we engage with those things is also love the way that you feel when you read the news and all of the fear that comes up how you meet that inside of yourself that's love and love is not without ferocity it's not without sharpness. It's not without extreme power and surrender, right? So next time you do dig your heels into your separation, your opposition, your judgment, and choose to see that over our common humanity, it's time to get down and dirty with your work. And if your work that you're committing to is not taking you to those places of inquiry, those places of awareness, then we need to start refining our self-work. If your self-work is the way you escape from how you show up in the world, it's not self-work. It's self-bypass. Let's call it what it is. I feel safe because there's so few of you here. <laughs> My desire, my request is that we return to an experience where life becomes something we appreciate. As long as life is something that we take advantage of and we don't appreciate, guys, we're barreling through space on an ending, on a destructive path. Until we can appreciate what is right in front of us on any given day, at any given time, we are missing the point. When we learn that everyone, guys, everyone and everything is a potential source of beauty, then you know what happens? We pay closer attention to all of those things. Sometimes it's really, really hard to find the beauty in some things, but it doesn't, that should just invite a deeper and maybe even more intense quality of your attention. Look harder when it's harder to see. I'm, I'm going to be, I hope from now on, an advocate for care. And this is what I want to say about that. I have an allergy to codependency. So I find a very big distinction between caring for and taking care of. When we take care of a thing, we're trying to take possession of that which needs care. And that's not okay. 
That's robbing our community of its autonomy and its own responsibility and its own accountability. So taking care of a thing is not necessarily the point. But caring for the things is. Care as an offering, not as a solution. Care as a way to engage, not as a way to fix or control. Care is the bridge that brings us back together. And so if you're not sure how to do this, how to care for something but not take care of it, try this. Just listen. When somebody has a grievance, a problem, a disagreement, a judgment, instead of immediately going to an oppositional or fixing stance in your mind, just stop, take deep breaths, and listen to what they have to say. No opinion is completely unfounded. None. Everything comes from somewhere. According to one aspect of tantric cosmology, even nothing comes from somewhere. So how do you engage at that level of care? You listen. Guys, have you ever been really heard? Have you ever been listened to? Even maybe you were ranting total chaos. And someone in your life just chose to listen. Do you know how good that feels? That's what care feels like. We are taught in our modern Western culture to take care of people, to take possession of other people's problems, often at our own expense. That's not how we come together. How we come together is let everyone be self-possessed and then care about it. Listen to people's problems like from a place of care. And what happens when you do that is you also feel more connected. Windows will open. Doors will crack. Understanding will dawn. Instead of trying to solve the problem, we just enter it with our friends, with community, with people we don't even know or agree with. It's the riskiest thing to do. It's the most daring behavior. It is the act of a Virabhav. You want to be a warrior, you start listening. You don't necessarily do anything about what you hear, except listen more deeply. Listen with your body and your heart and your soul. Resilience is not the fixing or avoidance of each other or each other's problems. Resilience is not the escape from the bad and the difficult. Resilience is not tuning out the world around you or trying to control everyone else's feelings. Resilience is engagement with wherever and whomever you find yourselves. Resilience is leaning into the discomfort, the unmet expectations, the disappointment and the pain and turning your heart towards open. Daring to be receptive when someone is telling you that they don't like the way they feel. 
Resilience is tuning into what is actually happening with care, not only for how it's affecting you, but also how it's impacting everyone around you. So I have nine suggestions. I never write a list like this. Do I, do I, do I write lists with numbers? Um, here they are. How can we bring more care into our lives? How can we start living resilience uh, from the place of connection? The first one, lower your expectations. You only expect everybody to get everything right and be perfect because you expect it of yourself. And I've been telling you for two years now that you're not perfect. Let it go. Don't try to be perfect. Even your mess is holy. Like, just like stop with the perfection already. And then lower your expectations of anyone else being perfect too. We are all human. And we are all having a uniquely human experience from a uniquely broken story. Try allowing that to be true. Okay, number one, lower your expectations. I mean, it's just like, it's just easier, y'all. It just, it's easier to have lower expectations. I mean, the Buddhists say don't have any. I mean, that's not realistic. Like, put the seat down. All right. You can expect that. But like, put the seat down every time? Probably not. Our relationship is over because you didn't put the seat down? Definitely not. Right? See how this works? Number two. Enhance every space that you find yourself in. How do you bring value added into every situation? And don't like do your whole perfection over the top, too big to ever achieve strategy. Like how can you walk in and enhance the space that you're in? Don't take care of anybody. Just come in and enhance the space. If this space is conflict, how do you enhance the conflict? If this space is discomfort, how do you enhance the discomfort? Like, don't get too wrapped up in bringing the good. Just enhance the space. Number three, be in service to the bigger picture. Even when you're pursuing your own, individual, in, your own individual goals and desires, be in service to the bigger picture. Make your successes an offering. And if you don't know what you're offering to, then you're not in service to the bigger picture. So get clear on what you're offering your successes to. Here's another one, number four. This one's one of my faves. Amplify the strengths of those around you. Stop trying to do it all. Guys, you're not good at it all. Again, another point of liberation. Now you get to, you free yourself from having to be good at it all by enhancing or celebrating, amplifying the strengths of those that are good at things that you're not good at. Give thanks that we're so unique. 
and different. Celebrate it. <clears throat> Number five, my favorite. Practice generosity. So if you're not used to being generous at first, it might feel weird and uncomfortable. But what happens is the more generous you are, the more you'll notice how generosity makes you feel good. We have become a culture and a society that's so protective of our time and our money and our efforts and our recognition, right? That we have forgotten how to just give freely. Like that is the experience of love. Giving freely with no expectation of return. Be generous. Maybe you can't be generous everywhere, but find the places where it works for you and do it. And hopefully as you do it, you'll find other places where you can expand your generosity into. You don't have to have a lot. Stop waiting. When I get this much money or this much time, I'll be more generous. No, generosity generates. If you're being generous with your time, it will generate more time for you. If you're being generous with your money, it will generate the money to be generous. Right? Are you with me? I feel insane trying to convince you of this, but I believe it in every bone of my body. Okay, number six. Be realistically optimistic. What does that mean? That means that you do not deny the reality of what is in any given moment. And you see that there's potential for more in any given moment. That's a, that's a precarious place and it takes some practice to get there. I'm in a difficult and challenging situation and I see the possibility for that situation to be something else. That's realistically optimistic. Number seven. Care for something beyond yourself and your immediate family. Animals included. Care for something bigger than just you and your own. And that care doesn't have to be necessarily um, acted upon. You can just hold it in your heart. That's a place to start. I have a number here, at least once a day. At least once a day, care for something bigger than you and your family. Number eight. Remember that, and this is in all caps, everyone has a unique story. When you find yourself pushing into separation and judgment and competition, take a moment to consider, just consider the other side of the story. It doesn't mean that you have to agree. Stop placing agreement as the holy grail of connection. It's not true. Maybe that'll be next month's conversation. Number nine, last one. 
Get really good at listening and feeling without having to fix, control, or manage. Get really good at listening and feeling without having to fix, control, or manage. The next time someone approaches you with something to say, try listening to them. Do it with strangers as much as you do it with friends. We will all come together when we all start caring about each other. And, and it's not a, not a small order. There's almost 8 billion of us now. And to get 8 billion to care about each other, that's a huge task. But we can start here. Caring about each other in a way that allows everyone involved to feel more resilient, more connected. That's yoga, y'all. If your yoga's not doing that yet, don't stop until it does. I really appreciate you hanging out with me for this hour and listening to me rant. This feels so big in me right now, so important, and I'm so grateful for your, your presence and your time. This podcast is only a fraction of what we do at Virabhava Yoga. To learn more about our live classes, workshops, online tantric meditation, and yoga trainings, visit our website, www.virabhavayoga.com or follow us on Instagram at virabhavayoga. You can also register to attend these conversations live and download the associated asana classes by visiting virabhavayoga.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to use code podcast2022 to save 15% off of anything on our website. May these conversations inspire you to explore yoga as resilience in your life. Thanks for listening.